Last week we began the the story of Esther. It really is a fascinating story that takes place at a very interesting time in Israel's history. As we talked about, they are living as exiles in a foreign land, really seeking to find their identity as God's chosen people. Because all that they had previously known has been taken away. There's no temple. There's no sacrifices. There's no priest. There's no king. We also learned that during this time, the new king of this Persian empire sent out a decree allowing some to return to their homeland. And as a result, there were a remnant of Jews who went back to Jerusalem. Guess what they did? Rebuilt the temple in order to reinstitute the sacrifices to live their lives according to the law. They were rediscovering their identity as God's chosen people. But we need to ask ourselves, what about the vast majority of Jews who still remained back in the region of Babylon? Did God care about only the ones who were in Jerusalem, those faithful Jews? What part could these exiles in this foreign land still seeking to find their identity, what part could they play in God's unfolding plan for his people? Well, Esther's life answers that question for us, and we're going to see that continue to unfold this morning. We'll find that Esther, like all the other Jews during her time, lived under the rule of a prideful, self-indulgent, immoral king, a king by the name of Xerxes, who after being publicly humiliated by his queen, he removed the crown from her, and intended to replace her with another. And since no self-respecting woman would ever sign up for that job, he institutes what essentially is a mandatory beauty contest, where he then is able to pick whoever he wants to be his next queen. Now, since I was accused of censoring my sermon last week, let me be clear. These young girls were forced to be with the king. They had no other choice. Today, we would call that sex trafficking. Plain and simple. Back then, it was the sinful reality of a pagan king living in an immoral world. And yet, despite that sinful reality, God works through that reality And his divine providence allows the king to then choose Esther to be his queen. This unknown Jewish girl who keeps her heritage hidden. Or another way to say that maybe is that she did not proclaim her faith. Now it's easy to be critical of Esther at this point in our story. Because here she is hiding Her faith and her contemporaries, people like Daniel, were willing to go to the lion's den, even be thrown into a fiery furnace for their faith, and she's hiding it. Well, let me encourage you to reserve judgment until, as Paul Harvey would say, (laughs) you hear the rest of the story. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, and before we do, let's ask the Lord to guide our time. 
Father, as we come before you and enter into the word that you inspired, we want to hear what you intended when this story took place and recorded in your word. There's a reason for it. There's a purpose behind it. And we as your people, many of which struggling to find our identity in you, that maybe this story would help answer some of our questions. In some ways, we are exiles because this world is not our home. So how are we to live when everything that we hope for is yet to come? Will you answer some of those questions through our time in your word this morning? Amen. All right, turn to Esther, chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse 19. Esther, chapter 2, verse 19. It says in verse 19, And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet been made, made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, and she had, had done while under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, same one. But the plot became known to Mordecai and he told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. The Bible tells us in this section that Mordecai was sitting at the city gate. What we need to understand is that that was technically an official position in the king's court. Now, it wasn't a prominent position, but it did give him access to inside information. This would be kind of like having a job and overhearing a conversation at the water cooler. I mean, that's where you really find out what's going on, right? Same idea here. And what he overhears is that there's a plot, uh, an assassination plot, by two men who intend to kill King Xerxes. Mordecai overhears this plot, so he tells Esther. And Esther goes immediately to to the king in Mordecai's name to inform him. There was an investigation to find out if that report was true, and in fact it was. And as a result, those two men were immediately executed. Now, when something like this normally happens, there's some kind of a reward attached to it, right? I mean, after all, he just saved the king's life. Maybe a a promotion or a raise. Something. But in this case, there was only silence. Nothing was done, and, and by all accounts, we don't even see that he went as far as to say thank you. Now let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Asherah, King Xerxes, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants uh, who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who 
were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they heard, when they had spoken daily to him, he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. At the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, after these events, if you do the math as you look at, our, our, at the book of Esther, you'll find that it's about five years' time taking place at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. We ended chapter 2 with, with Mordecai being overlooked for having saved the life of, a, of the king. Here we find out about a new character in our story, a man by the name of Haman. And we learn that he has been given a promotion. Now, we don't know why he received that honor, but I suspect, as we will see later on, it might have to do with the fact that he is a very wealthy man. The expectation of a man in this kind of position was that when he walked into a room, you bowed to pay homage. Much like if you were at a banquet and the guest speaker that you were anticipating to listen to walks into the room, what does everybody do? They stand up, right? It's a way of showing respect. So it's the same idea, but in this culture, instead of standing up, you bow down. And everyone did that, except for Mordecai. He remained standing. Why is that? Was he jealous because this man received an honor that was really due to him? Was it a religious conviction? Or, or maybe there's a history of bad blood. Well, I think that actually might be the case, and let me tell you why. See, there are two times in this chapter when Haman is introduced, and he's the same way both times. It says he's the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The second time, it actually goes as far as to say that, that these are enemies of the Jews. You see, this goes back to Israel's very first enemy, the Amalekites. Remember that name? Do you remember the battle when Moses held up his hands and the Israelites were, were winning and then when he dropped his hands, they began to lose and then when he held his hands, they restored their victory. Remember that. That was the Amalekites. And God promised that those people would always be an enemy of the Jews until they would ultimately be destroyed. Fast forward a few years and you'll learn about a, a battle that King Saul leads. Now remember, Mordecai is a descendant of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Well, in this battle, Saul takes captive the king by the name of Agag, thus Agagites. So what you have here is a long history of feuding between the Israelites and the Amalekites and descendants ultimately from Saul and Agag. Mordecai and Haman. And so, as you can imagine, there's all this history that's been built up. And so what you have is basically a pile of sticks with gasoline poured on them. And Mordecai just threw a spark. And Haman is filled with rage. <laughs> now look at verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Think history here. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, 
who were throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In this month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, per, that is a lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adair. Then Haman said to the king, Xerxes, This is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. You'll notice that this is no longer just a personal vendetta between two men, Mordecai and Haman. This is a war between two people groups, and Haman certainly has the upper hand. It's his desire, based on his position of influence, to completely annihilate the Jewish people. And then to determine the the timing of this plan that he intends, he decides to cast lots, or more literally, roll the dice. Back in this ancient culture, uh, uh, that was called pur. One was a single was pur, two was purim. So purim was a paradise that he then rolled to determine when he would carry out his plan. The number came up twelve. Twelve months from that date would be the day in which he would carry out his plan to annihilate the Jews, which gave him plenty of time. To prepare the scope of such an evil plan. And the first order of business, of course, was to talk to the king. And I want you to notice how masterful, how wickedly masterful Haman is when he goes to speak to the king. You'll notice he never once mentions the personal offense that he's had with Mordecai. He never brings up his name at all. In fact, he presents it as a people group. Those who are an offense, not to Haman, but to who? The king. These were rebels in this newly acquired kingdom. They had their own set of laws and didn't even follow the ones that he put out there. These were people who threatened the very sovereignty of his rule. And they needed to be destroyed. See, if King Xerxes wants to truly be in control, he needs to get rid of them. Now, I want you to notice how he sweetens the deal. (laughs) Keep in mind, based on what we've talked about, we know that this is a people who have sought to expand this Persian Empire. And remember, he had spent all this time, all this money, all these resources to go against this country, Greece. And what happened? He was defeated, humiliated as a king, lost all kinds of money, all kinds of resources, all kinds of respect. And now all of a sudden, Haman shows up and intends to restore both. He says, I'll tell you what. I will contribute 10,000 talents. That's millions and millions of dollars. 
into the king's bank account. Just as long as you give me permission to destroy the very people in your kingdom who give you no respect. This guy needs to run for office. He is a brilliant politician. So successful was his plea that the king gives him his signet ring. Now, we don't understand what that means today, but that'd be like handing over your credit card. It's pre-approved. You can do whatever you want to with it. Basically, he gives Haman his complete royal authority, pre-approved to do whatever he wants. And Haman has his eyes fixed on the Jews. Look at what happens next. Verse 11. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours, the people also, to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And it was written, just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its own script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adair, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the people, so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out immediately by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. What an interesting decree. First of all, we learn that the decree goes out 12 months before it actually goes into effect. And not only that, it gives every single citizen, think about this, every single citizen in the Persian Empire the royal authority to take the law into their own hands and to destroy the Jews and take whatever they have as their plunder. Every man, woman, and child given the right to kill and plunder the Jews, at least Hitler hid his evil schemes. Haman, not so much. He invited the entire empire to join him. As you might expect, the decree throws everybody into confusion. They, they get this probably like they got the last one going, what in the world is going on here? Why is this happening? And what are the king and Haman doing? Sitting down in the palace and having a drink. See, power Immorality is a bad combination. And that's what you see taking place. Look at how the story continues in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. And he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's court clothed in sackcloth, and in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. 
and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Athak with the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. You know, I wondered as I read this, I wonder if Haman had the audacity to hand deliver the decree to Mordecai. Seems like something that he might do. Either way, regardless of how he received the news, the response of, of Mordecai was to become hysterical. To go to the city court, the city square, where all the people gathered, and to put on a public display of his anguish and emotion in what was taking place. Maybe he went to these extremes because he realized that his actions had now put an entire race of people at risk. Word spreads quickly. and Esther hears of what's going on in the king's court right there in the middle for everyone to see. And so she sends him some clothes. That sounds odd to us, but really it was a gesture of compassion and concern. Much like when somebody's in mourning, we might bring them a meal, right? Some gesture of kindness and of comfort during a time of need. That's essentially what's going on here. But Mordecai refuses. And as we would be alarmed if that gesture was refused when we offered it, she was concerned. And so she sends somebody to go find out exactly what's going on. Look at what she finds out in verse 6. So Hathak went out to the Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. And Tathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Tathak and ordered him to, to reply to Mordecai, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai explains the details of Haman's decree. Even telling her the exact amount of the money given to the king. I read that and I thought, well, how does he know that? 
I don't know that there's an answer in the text, but I think Haman probably feels bulletproof. And chances are, based on what we know of him, he's bragging about it. Great wealth and great pride usually go hand in hand. And so the amount of money is listed there because it's significant. The reason it's significant is because it adds weight. It gives power to the decree. A lot is on the line. And Mordecai tells Esther, you've got to do something because there's nothing that's going to stop this from happening. But Esther explains why that simply is not possible. And the reason that's not possible is because there's a well-known law that everybody is aware of that if anyone, man, woman, child, enters into the king's presence without being summoned by him, there's only one result, and that's immediate death. The only way you go into the king's presence is if he summoned you first. Nestor explains that she hasn't seen the king in over a month. So, as far as she's concerned, the king may not even care about her anymore, which even puts her at even greater risk if she doesn't follow that law. But Mordecai tells her that her life is at risk no matter what she does. True, if she goes into the king, she's doing it at great risk. But if she remains silent, the risk still remains because she, too, is a Jew. And then Mordecai makes an interesting statement there at the very last verse, verse 14. He asks Esther the question, what if you were in this place of royalty for such a time as this? The implication here is, what if this is not just a coincidence? (laughs) What if there's divine providence at play? Either way, this is a defining moment in Esther's life. What is she going to do? What would you do? You're in a no-win situation. You risk life and death no matter what. Let's find out. Look at verse 15. Then Esther told them, reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Now, it might have been tempting up at this point, up to this point, is to criticize Esther for hiding her faith, for compromising her beliefs, for being conformed to the ways of the world around her. You might have been able to do that, but not anymore. She has decided to stand up for what she believes, no matter what the cost, even at the risk of her very own life. If I perish, I perish. That is a bold statement of faith. In fact, it's the first time in our story that Esther commands Mordecai 
and he does just as she tells him to. She's no longer passive. She's no longer accepting orders. She is now taking control and standing up for what she believes. See, I I believe this is a defining moment in the life of Esther. Maybe she's been too passive, too willing to to go along with the crowd, but, but not anymore. Maybe she's been a a victim of of circumstances her entire life, but not anymore. On this day, she courageously stands for what she believes. This is Esther's defining moment. Now, as you think about Esther's life, I want you to consider where you stand. Are you just going along with the crowd? Are you a victim of your circumstances? Do you hide the fact that you are a follower of Christ just so you can fit in? I told you about our international student that we had over our house recently, and I was concerned about dietary restrictions. I asked him, and he said, no, I eat anything. Okay. He's from India, and so that kind of surprised me when we sat down to have dinner. Grant's birthday was coming up, so we asked him, you know, how do you guys, what's your tradition in India for celebrating birthdays? He said, oh, we used to go to the temple and pray, but nobody does that anymore. He says, we're much more westernized. As he went on to explain, I understand what he meant. Being westernized means that you have the right to do whatever you want. And you don't follow any tradition or authority because... You do what's right in your own eyes. That's what it means to be westernized. I'm also reading a book, a true story about a a man who came to faith. It's called uh, 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 Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. In the beginning of this story, this author is describing his life as a devoted Muslim. And in this story, he talks about what it was when he lived in America to see Americans. Now, whether we like it or not, the fact of the matter is, those from other countries look at our country as a Christian country. Everybody in America is a Christian. And really, we're not all that different because we look at Iraq and we think that everybody there is a Muslim, right? Well, they go on to explain that the reason why America is in such moral decay is because when you're a Christian, you can claim to know God, but then do whatever you want. That's what it means to be a Christian. So is that true for you? Do you claim faith in Jesus Christ and then do whatever you want so that your life looks no different than anybody else around you? What would motivate you to stand up for what you believe. See, I believe for Esther, that strength that she found within herself was based on her understanding of how many lives were at stake. This wasn't just a personal decision. This was an understanding of the impact that she had because of who she was and the influence she had in that kingdom. 
by God's grace, she was in a place to do something about it. God had made her queen for such a time as this. Her conviction was deeply grounded in the belief that her faith could make a difference in someone else's life. And for that reason alone, she was unwilling to hide it any longer. Now you listen to me very closely because the very same thing is true for you. By God's grace, you understand the power of His redeeming love. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you understand forgiveness found through faith in Christ alone. And that faith has the power to save the world. Scripture tells us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Your faith has the power to make a life-changing difference in someone else's life. Why, in God's name, would you keep that a secret? Why would you hide your faith from the world around you? Why would you try to fit in so that you look like everybody else around you? I want you to think about this this morning. I want to ask you to take it to heart. Because maybe, for some of you, this is your defining moment. Perhaps you've been too passive, (laughs) too willing to go along with the crowd, to, to fit in with everything that's going on around you, but not anymore. Maybe you've been a victim of circumstances your entire life, but perhaps this morning you decide, Not anymore. Maybe this is your defining moment. When you recognize what God has done for you, you understand the place that He has put you and the influence that you have in the lives of those around you. You have a message of salvation through faith in Christ alone that has the power to save. Why would you keep that a secret let me ask you this are you willing to sacrifice your own self-interests for the sake of the gospel that's a serious question and one that i encourage each and every one of us to consider honestly this morning are you willing to sacrifice your own self-interests for the sake of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is this your defining moment? See, I believe God has raised us up for such a time as this. It's easy to sit back and say, oh, the world is in a pit. It's going to hell in a handbasket, and I can't believe all these things are happening. True. And you have the answer to what it means to have hope and salvation and the promise of eternal life where all things are made new. You have the ability through the way you live your life to proclaim a message of salvation through faith in Christ alone that this world 
desperately needs to hear. You have been born for such a time as this. It's not an accident. This is divine providence at play. And so we just need to ask ourselves, are we willing to stand up for what we believe? To live lives that give the testimony of what we say is true? To profess the message of the gospel even at risk of our own reputations and for some in this world at the risk of their own life? Let me ask you, to consider that question and don't leave this morning without honestly answering it in your heart. And then as you live your life this week, ask yourself another question. Does it reflect what I said was true? So we're just going to take a little bit to consider that question. It's that important. And then I'll close this in prayer. Father, I want to confess to you that I have sorely underestimated the power of Satan's influence in the world in which we live. I have underestimated the impact of the influence of generations in our world who are being led astray. I confess to you that even in visiting with someone from another country. <laughs> I reserve that influence to our country alone, and in fact, it's throughout the world. And yet, in the midst of all the reality of this evil, like Esther, we live today for such a time as this. We, by your grace and mercy, have been put into a place of relationship with you so that we now have a message to proclaim that has the power to save. I pray this morning for each and every person who honestly considered this question for their life that perhaps they decided this morning that this would be their defining moment. The day in which they've determined in their heart that they would not be passive not conform to the world, that they would sacrifice their own self-interest for the sake of the gospel, that message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Father, give them strength. Give them courage. Give them fellowship with others who have committed to the same. Help them surround themselves with those who are willing to stand up for what they believe and refuse to follow the crowd that goes a different way. Father, help them understand that they were born for such a time as this. And may they no longer hide their faith anymore. May they stand up for what they believe and live so that it communicates the truth of what they profess. 
Father, thank you for our time and the power of your word and the story of Esther, even in our lives today. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on which we all stand and believe. And all God's people said, Amen.